I did a leadership course in the summer of 2014 at Columbia University, and I remember one of the many takeaways was if you want to lead an organization, it has to be one you care deeply about. And when the position came up at Case, I thought, actually, I care deeply about the University of Melbourne, but I'm not going to be a university leader of a research intensive university. I couldn't think of an organization I cared more deeply about than Case. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Sue Cunningham, who is president and CEO of CASE. Sue, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm not sure I've ever had a conversation with someone who's a chief troublemaker before. Well, I think it's (laughs) going to be really fun. Chief troublemakers are awesome. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Hey, so Sue, tell us about CASE. Sure. So CASE is coming up to our 50th year. We'll be 50 in 2024. We're a global association that's dedicated to advancing education to transform lives and society. And we do that by serving people who work in what we describe as integrated advancements. So it's all of the fields that are engaged in schools and colleges and universities in external relations. So people in communications, in marketing, in fundraising, in alumni relations, in advancement services. So all of those areas coming together and working closely together together with institutional leadership to advance education. And we're really focused on defining the competencies and standards for the profession of advancement and leading and championing their dissemination and application across the world's educational institutions. And when I talk about the world, we have 3,100 member institutions, so that's schools and colleges and universities in 80 countries with about 97,000 advancement professionals working in them. Wow, amazing. So, Sue, This is kind of an interesting time for colleges and universities. There are some folks who are saying, is it still worth it? What's the ROI? It's really expensive. Is it for everybody? So is that creating new and different challenges for your members? I think the answer is certainly. There are, particularly when we talk about the Western world, I think perceptions, if we think about initially higher education, are impacted by the political polarization we're seeing in many different parts of the world. I would say that the reality is higher education is still profoundly worthwhile. And if we look at the impact, not just on those people who have the opportunity to study or work in higher education, but also more broadly societally. I mean, we're just, I hope, emerging from a pandemic. If one takes one tiny example of societal impact, the development of vaccines and the work that happened in universities and the outcome of research in universities that delivered on that. Yes. And if one looks at the work in independent schools, which is another really important sector of our case membership, 
the amount that those schools do in their community, in addition to educating and offering opportunities and access to students to experience the schools, is phenomenal. And I think the storytelling about the impact that those schools are having more broadly in the community through partnership is really important and the, the extent to which those schools are very mission-based. So I could go on all day about why schools and universities are so important. And we're currently involved in an initiative called Discover the Next, which is really focusing on amplifying the impact of higher education, working with universities and colleges around the world. Sue, you are an international organization. You have a global board. You have regional councils and district cabinets. You've got staff around the world. How do you manage a global staff with all of those languages and those time zones? I think a simple answer is by being nimble. We have an expectation of all of our staff that they are curious about different parts of the world. No one can be an expert in education in 80 countries, but the desire to have a deeper understanding and awareness. And we see with the 4,000 or so people who volunteer with us each year in our, in our member institutions, a real appreciation of the value of exchange across borders and boundaries and the learning opportunities. So when we moved into our new offices for our headquarters earlier this year, a key tool for us is really good video conferencing facilities, quite apart from the experience we've been through for the last two and a half years. I'm regularly, as are my colleagues, having meetings with people, as you describe, across time zones, across countries, and our ability to be nimble, our preparedness. Bless her, one of my executive team is based in Seattle and is often on calls at six o'clock in the morning for her. Yes, yeah. And other colleagues are in Western Australia and Singapore and are sometimes on calls at nine or 10 o'clock at night for them. But the understanding in every region that we need to be nimble about our preparedness to be on camera and in meetings at different times of day. And that's just part of the deal, but also appreciating that people need a life. So making sure we're being thoughtful about how that works. But I see it as a huge plus and really exciting, both for those working with CASE and in CASE, to have that opportunity to engage with professionals and communities all over the world. Sue, you just gave me a phenomenal number, 4,000 volunteers. Now, your members are institutions, but obviously institutions might be members, but it's people who really take advantage of benefits. So how many people do those members represent? And 4,000 volunteers, what are they doing for CASE? Every member institution provides a roster of the people within the institution who want to engage with CASE. Right. So on our rosters right now are just over 97,000 people. Wow. And that could be the predominantly people working in advancement, but often institutional leaders and provosts and deans and so on. And then when we look at our volunteers, I think our volunteers would acknowledge that we ask a lot of them and they are incredibly engaged. In fact, my journey to becoming engaged with CASE when I was working in advancement was by being drawn in as a volunteer for the organization. So volunteers do everything with CASE from sitting, as you say, on our board or on our regional councils or district cabinets, sitting on our commissions, which are our think tanks. Whenever we're thinking about doing anything strategic, so for example, work around our data and surveys, we have steering committees of volunteers to help us develop and focus them. And volunteers also, we run nearly 140 programs a year in person and virtually. Oh, my God. And the vast majority of people teaching on those programs are volunteers. So it's the lifeblood of CASE. They are the lifeblood of CASE. Before we get into the things that CASE is doing to thrive, tell us how you got to become president and CEO of CASE. Tell us about your journey. So... 
if I go back to the beginning of my career, I would never have guessed that this is what I'd be doing at this stage of my career. And yet, if you look backwards, it sort of does moderately make sense. So I, at college, I studied performing arts and wanted to work in theatre and went to work in theatre and stage management. Wow. In the UK, in North Wales, at a theatre called Theatre Cloyd, and was there for six years. As I was approaching the age of 30, I realized that there weren't many stage managers who were over 30, apart from in the West End. So I started to move into arts administration and worked for a photographic gallery. And that photographic gallery that I worked for in South Wales was starting to think about fundraising. And so that was part of my job description when I started in that organization. And then things moved remarkably swiftly from there to a set of museums across Wales where I set up fundraising. And then my first university job was at the end of 1997-98, where I was hired to be the direct, Deputy Director of External Relations at the University of St Andrews, where, as you can hear, I'd had very little experience, no experience in the university sector working and been building teams, but over a relatively short period of time. And so I was really looking for where I could learn this profession, and I found CASE. So from the earliest days at St. Andrews, when I was deputy director and then became director of external relations, then went to Oxford for 10 years to run development for a college and then for the whole university, and then to the University of Melbourne in Australia, where I headed up advancement there. And throughout that journey, CASE was a sort of guiding light and creating a community and a source of learning and volunteerism. And when this position came up in 2014, and someone said, have you thought about applying for it? In fact, one of the trustees who was at one of the case conferences in Hong Kong, and I said, I doubt they'd hire someone with my accent. Every president of case has been from the US. <laughs> and 10 months later, I was offered the position, which was phenomenal. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. And that's now nearly coming up eight years ago, Joanna, eight years. Wow. <laughs> Well, so what's interesting is you interacted with CASE as a member, you volunteered, you kind of moved up the ranks in the leadership, and then decided to join the organization. So amazing. It was amazing. I did a leadership course in the summer of 2014 at Columbia University, and I remember one of the many takeaways was if you want to lead an organization, it has to be one you care deeply about. And when the position came up at CASE, I thought, actually... I care deeply about the University of Melbourne, but I'm not going to be a university leader of a research intensive university. I couldn't think of an organization I cared more deeply about than CASE. And that's still true. That's still very true. Amazing. Let's talk about the things that CASE is doing to thrive. And let's start with your governance. And you and I talked earlier about how organizations that have governance that allows them to make decisions in kind of a rational manner when you have boards that work well with their chief executives are really the ones that are thriving. So you decided that you were going to update the governance. So tell us about that. What was it like and why did you decide that we need a change? My first year as a CEO at Case, which is a fairly normal thing to do, we went through a strategic planning process, which was brilliant in no small part because it really worked well with a listening tour. And because we have so many engaged volunteers, I think there were about two and a half thousand people consulted about that strategic plan. We came up with a series of pillars around member engagement and educational programs and diversity, equity, inclusion, and so on. But there were two enablers that people said to achieve these things, we think these two enablers are critical. One is technology and upgrading our systems, but the other was governance. And at that stage, back in 2015, we had 11 fiduciary boards around the world, which had grown 
11. 11 fiduciary boards. Which had grown organically over the 40-something years of history of the organization, all of whom had dedicated, committed people sitting around every table doing great work. But there was no connectivity or very limited connectivity between those boards. So having made that determination, we took a group of representative volunteers of a dozen or so of us to Singapore, where we were having the 10th anniversary of Case Asia Pacific in Singapore, together with a a superb person consultant who worked with us on this journey to say, okay, if we were starting from scratch, what would it look like? And we broke into three groups. And by the end of the second day, everyone had aligned on one model, which was one fiduciary board and a series of regional councils giving globally regional advice and guidance and a series of district cabinets far more local, far more member engagement focused. And having come out of that session in March of 2016 with that design, we then spent the next two and a half years consulting and engaging towards implementation. And that was, so the date it all came to effect was in the summer of 2020. So maybe it was 2017 we met, but by the summer of 2020, we had all the votes. And to get it done, not only did we have to build buy-in and engagement around every one of those 11 tables, but we also then had to take it to the vote of the membership. And the core were different in all of the different regions. So that was a piece of work, but we had huge support from across all of our volunteer bodies. I think we only had four people on the whole journey who were not entirely supportive of where we were going. So the level of engagement and support and vision was, was superb. And Sue, the end result was that you now have one fiduciary board one fiduciary board. So that's kind of a big deal to consolidate from 11 to 1. And I've seen organizations basically implode over these types of decisions. What's been the result of the process of changing the governance and then really kind of changing the governance into one fiduciary board? What are you able to do now? And what are the benefits? I'd reflect on a couple of things, and both relating to things you've said in this conversation. One is because of the scale and complexity, I work with many other educational associations and the majority I work with are regionally based. So Universities UK focus on the UK, American Council for Education focuses on on the United States. That we are across so many nations means that I would argue we haven't consolidated into one board. We have one fiduciary board. And with the regional councils, and we now have four because we created one for the US and Canada and one for Latin America, that's where we have the deep regional understanding, advice, and can help guide strategy. And with the cabinets, and when we were doing the work, we had eight cabinets or eight district boards in the US, now district cabinets in the US and Canada. We now have three more in Europe, and they're really the member-centered and focused Ah, so you've still got governance structure around the world, but the fiduciary board, there's one. Exactly right. And if one thinks, for example, about the pandemic and the speed with which every organization needed to shift, and for us, that was about seeing where we could pull back on some expenditure commitments, seeing how we could move what was 50% of our revenue, which was our in-person programs online. You know, there were a lot of very swift and thoughtful decisions that needed to be made. If there had been 11 different boards involved. You never would have been able to make those decisions. Not as quickly and the speed with which we were able to do it. 
I think, made a huge difference to us meeting our three goals during the pandemic. One was protecting the organization fiscally, supporting our staff and supporting our members and being able to do those three things. I think the nimbleness with which we were able to act was because of this new design of governance structure in no small part and because of the people who were involved in making it work. Now, Sue, you also did something pretty amazing during the pandemic, which was you developed a new strategic plan. And it was really very forward thinking. So tell us about that. And how do you do it when you can't be in person? It felt actually like a very positive thing to be doing in the midst of a crisis. You know, arguably, we could have spent the two solid years of the pandemic when there was very little in-person interaction really focusing on navigating the pandemic. And it was a lot, a lot of work and a lot of dedicated work. To be able to say six months in, it's important we continue to be very strategic in how we navigate this. And we need to focus on how this organization is going to be stronger coming out of it. Uh, It was also informed by the previous strategic plan, thinking we've moved the organization a fair bit, but we really need to revisit our business model. So those two things meant that we then spent from September, October of 2020, through to the publication of our new strategic plan at the beginning of this year, what we described as recalibrating the organization resulting in our new strategic plan. So it felt like a a very focused piece of work amidst senior staff and with a small group of trustees who were acting as, as a group that we could test ideas out with and get input from. So really as a focus group and as supporters, which our board have been incredibly supportive since day one of my experience at Case. Boy, that is amazing that you got all that done. And you have some new products and services that you have kind of started as a result of the strategic planning process. And one of them is the global reporting standards for the profession. So that's interesting. Tell us about that. And it's global reporting standards. It is. So we've been, Case has been delivering or developing reporting standards for nearly 40 years. But if you'd picked up our standards, which were on many desks in the United States and Canada before this publication, they were very U.S. focused. Many references to the IRS in relation particularly to philanthropy. These global reporting standards have really provided focus worldwide. So we've taken out any references to the IRS, for example. There are country-specific chapters, but they are first and foremost the reporting standards for the profession of advancement. They contain our principles of practice, our ethical statements, and a whole set of policies and procedures around philanthropy, around what you count, around what you don't count philanthropically, around donor influence and where donor influence is inappropriate. And all in all, I think they're a critical resource, as every profession has its own standards, in terms of the protection of reputation of the profession. So I think they're an invaluable resource and something we're really committed over this strategic plan to ensuring that all 3,100 of our member institutions are aware of them, engaged with them, and adopting them. Sue, talk to us a little bit about the ethics of donor influence. That was something interesting in what you just said. So I think, sadly, there are times when we read in the newspaper headlines in the U.S. and in other parts of the world stories around philanthropic gifts or actually times when they're not philanthropic at all, but which are being suggested as being philanthropic, where there are real concerns about the donors. And of course, you know, one can think of a number of names of individuals and institutions from Epstein to Sackler and so on, where there are real concerns about the reputational impact on institutions by engaging with specific donors. 
what the global standards contain is really specific guidelines about what influence it's appropriate for donors to have and what expectations donors should have. And there's very clear language around philanthropy being an act where one shouldn't expect or anticipate any kind of tangible benefit Mm. from gifting philanthropically. So for example, if you are an institution where you're building a new building and uh, Joanna Pineda is giving a significant gift to name the new building, and Joanna has a wonderful friend who's an architect and wants your friend to be the architect who designs the building, that's undue donor influence. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So of course you could suggest to architects when they're thinking about architects, but as a donor, you cannot determine who the architect for the building is, but that's just one small illustration. And of course there are times with potential donors or actual donors where one can't anticipate reputational issues 20 or 30 years down the line. And at the same time, I think these reporting standards and the ethical standards and guidelines within them provide some really helpful lines to pursue and follow, which will protect, but there can't be 100% guarantees for all the obvious reasons. Yeah, that makes sense. Sue, you also, as an organization, have developed a new career journey framework. I love this. So tell us about that. I mean, it's really helping your members to be intentional about their professional development. Absolutely. So cases, when we do member surveys, one of the top benefits that members describe in terms of their engagement with case is our educational programs. Another one is around community. So we've been running educational programs for all of the 48 years of our history. We now run them in person we ha- and online and have about 140 each year, a combination of those both. So it's a great deal in different parts of the world. We developed during the last strategic plan a competency framework. So if you're working in advancement, what are the eight competencies from strategic thinking to emotional intelligence to financial acumen to relationship building to a whole set of competencies? What the career journey framework does is map out at every stage of someone's career, and it's at six different levels, what experience, what expertise, and what programs, therefore, it would be helpful to you to engage in, in order that you're developing over your career. And that framework or a set of curricula for people working in, in educational advancement hasn't existed anywhere as formally as that before. And of course, again, careers are not linear. People go in all sorts of different directions. They may be a marketing professional who decides to move into advancement services or an alumni relations professional who decides to move into student relations, or there could be a whole different array of career directions or people who come in mid-career from something entirely different and come into a fundraising role. So what competencies do people need at different stages and what are the tools to help build those competencies? So an amazing framework for someone who is a professional, as well as their managers and their bosses. Absolutely. So that they can help really guide the professional development for the people working for them. Wow. Absolutely. And working with those people, working with talent managers, with leaders within institutions to help develop their team's career journey frameworks is absolutely the heart of this. And We're building this over the current years of the plan. So we're now year one, so that by 2027, that career journey framework will be fully populated. Now, I also want to talk about your AM Atlas, because it's a wonderful benefit that I think has really helped CASE thrive. So tell us about the surveys. So I was talking to someone earlier today who's involved in a program that we do called the CASE Academy that I'm teaching on, who was saying 
for me, my ability to build my team and therefore be successful has been so informed by data because I can take the data to my leaders and say, you've invested X and we've achieved Y. If you invest 3X, we can achieve 3Y or 6Y or whatever it might be. So data, I think we're finding in all walks of life has become increasingly critical. And AM Atlas is the umbrella for all of the surveys and benchmarking studies and research that CASE does in support of our members. So we have, for example, the Voluntary Support of Education Survey, which has 40 years of data around fundraising in universities in the U.S., We have a survey in Australia and the UK and in Canada, all of which are now using the same data points. So we can compare learnings across different parts of the world. And we introduced about four years ago alumni engagement metrics so that for the first time, we can compare apples with apples in terms of what we're learning about what works with alumni engagement. And institutional leaders can again understand the huge impact of their investment in alumni engagement, which has many facets from volunteerism to communications, to advocacy, to philanthropy, and a whole set of other things besides. So those are just some illustrations of the data and research that we do, but I think a critical tool to anybody working in educational advancement in 2022. So Sue, we can't interview you without talking about your new book. It's called Global Exchange and it's Conversations We'll put a screenshot on Instagram and we'll put a link in the show (laughs) notes. And it's basically conversations with Sue Cunningham about these different topics. Tell us about the new book. So the book is, as you describe it, there are 10 chapters and conversations with 40 leaders in philanthropies for educational institutions and in educational advancement about trends affecting the advancement of education. And for me, having had the opportunity in my life to live in different parts of the UK, in Australia, and now in the US, and having had the opportunity to grow in the case community for 18 years as a volunteer and now nearly eight as a CEO and president, there's just a community of deep expertise in different parts of the world. And what was incredibly sort of heartening about working on this book is inviting the person who led the largest foundation in Australia, the person who leads one of the major foundations in the UK, the leader of a university in California or the head of a school in Oxford in the UK. And every single person said, absolutely, we'll spend 90 minutes on a call talking about the future of advancement, talking about working across barriers, talking about the future of alumni relations, talking about perceptions of the value of higher education. So every single person I asked agreed to do it. Wow. And We had 10 of these 90-minute conversations with some people, of course, with the time zones up at 11 at night, other people up at six in the morning, and bringing together leaders who otherwise wouldn't have come together in any other context. And so the result of the book is it's having brought those conversations together and worked in developing, refining, and honing, it's almost like lifting the curtain on a stage and being able to be party to those conversations and like the best conversations that one is party to, whether it be on a podcast or on a at a live conference, the ability to be able to return to them because they're in published form and pick up vignettes and information from different voices. Yes. And again, in my mind, no one has the monopoly on great ideas, that ideas and inspiration come from every part of the world, which is why particularly in a world in which there are increasing challenges, I think global exchange and respect and a deep interest and curiosity is more important now than ever. Sue, it's exactly how I feel about this podcast. 
Every week, I get to interview interesting, creative, amazing CEOs like yourself, and they give me time and they spill the beans. They share the secrets (laughs) about the things that they're doing that other association execs can learn from. And it's been amazing. So, Sue, how is membership? Membership is great. Yes. During the pandemic, we certainly saw some drops in membership. I think it was a combination of of literally the traditional means of sending renewal notices not arriving with the right people. Right, right. And also, I think there was a period of time where institutions really didn't know where they were fiscally and what they could and couldn't do. But we're seeing a real resurgence and rebuilding of membership and feeling very good about it, feeling really good. And of course, ultimately, for members to be engaged with an organization, the value proposition is at the heart of it. We're really committed to that and the work that we're doing in building out the organization and the resources to members. And we're just finishing a piece of market research with our membership around the world because hearing what's important to them is absolutely at the heart of what determines how we move forwards. Sue, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and listeners. In speaking with Sue, we found out that we are neighbors. (laughs) We are. (laughs) So we are going to schedule coffee and walks, and it's going to be amazing. Sue, thank you so much for joining me today, and I hope you'll come back. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to that coffee, Joanna. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye. Bye.